one of my favorite stories about a celebrity is I, I got to interview Ray Charles. And I went to buy like an old Ray Charles album because I could so I could get a signature for my father-in-law. And because I never got our autographs, that's like one thing you never do. You know, like, fuck, I don't care about you. I'm not getting your autograph. But I was going to get Ray Charles autograph. So I asked him if he'd sign something. And he says, sorry, I don't sign anything I can't see. Jesus. <laughs> Funny. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I am really happy to bring Mike Sager onto the show. Sager is a kind of literary anthropologist. He has interviewed so many names in entertainment, in sports, uh, profiles on the likes of uh, Jack Nicholson, Robert De Niro, David Duchovny, Kobe Bryant. Um, he, he's just talked with kind of such a, a pantheon of American cultural who's who and is himself just a fascinating guy the way he was able to perfect profiles and interviews. Uh, some of his work has been the inspiration for Boogie Nights. Um, he worked at Bob Woodward's Washington Post. He worked closely with Janet Cook, where there was a huge scandal there with Jimmy's World, a child heroin addict that was a completely invented story. Um, so we covered a lot of terrain over the course of his career and, I mean, interviews with Jack Nicholson, De Niro, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Kirk Douglas, Julia Child, Ray Charles, Faye Dunaway, Evil Knievel, Roseanne Barr, Rod Steiger. Uh, he's somebody very special in this domain of profiling and uh, it was really fun to get his perspective about how he perfected this art form and science of, of profiling people and revealing them in a, a very unique way um, that, that I've admired for a long time. So I hope you enjoy this show. I was just rereading your Kobe Bryant profile, speaking of athletes. What was that like for you to, to hear that news? Um, I encountered Kobe at a difficult time in his career. And I think the kind of trajectory of my story is very much indicative of my work. And that is that Every person you mention who's public, if you mention them, then everyone on the planet has like a two or three word take on who they are. Yeah. Or in the old days on, in Spy Magazine, they used to have those wonderful, nasty, adjectival prefixes. And everyone has one, you know, a rapist, Kobe, you know. <laughs> Usually sure. it was two words. But so I encountered Kobe when he was had settled the rape suit, given Vanessa the ring, um, and then he was also dissatisfied with the Lakers, and after all that, he wanted to leave. It was after Shaq. And everybody, like, fucking hated Kobe. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up watching Kobe. You know, there's a whole story. I kind of came out here... 
the same year Kobe came out here. And I was a young dad, and I basically had no life except for working and watching the Lakers. I used to tape them on a VCR. And, like, I'd wait till late at night and be able to watch, like, a quarter. Um, but it was great because you could fast forward the commercials. And, like, sometimes um, I would put on the tape that I'd been waiting for several nights to watch because we only got, like, I don't know, like, home games or whatever we got down in San Diego. And I would put in the Kobe tape and I'd start watching it. And then all of a sudden it would be Sesame Street or, you know, like, somebody had taped over it. Um so I, you know, that, uh, the Lakers were my one kind of hobby, and I've never been much of a sports fan. I played sports in college. Up till college, I wanted to do nothing else but play soccer and lacrosse. I mean, that's all I did. I was my—I didn't read anything. I was a terrible student. Um, so I get something about being an athlete. I used to like put in the work because I'm—I was five foot three and one thirty-five, and. Mm-hmm trying to play at a soccer and lacrosse in college. Um, ended up at Emory, Division Three. Was recruited at Brown as a lacrosse player, but I tore up my ankle and they stopped talking to me uh, senior year. But so, you know, I was like really into it. And I, I bring that element to my work. Like I've always brought that element to my work. I just like, I tape a hundred tapes and then I transcribe every minute of every tape. Hmm. Like back in the days when we used to have four months to do a story, I would often spend, and you ask about the, the quarantine, I would often spend two to three weeks just getting up in the morning, like doing my family things or before my family, no things, um, and then coming down and, and transcribing for like eight fucking hours and then do it again the next day. And um, I always felt as though that's what made me into a, a good writer because I would like download this character and everything that they were saying and the way they said it. And often in my stories, especially my anthropological ones, they kind of reflect like I have my own writing style, but the style has a different what I like to call flavor. Yeah. You know, it's like you don't have to quote people, but you can use their you can steal their language and use it as part of your own. And so work ethic, big for me. I like went to the Washington Post. I had been at Emory University and worked at Creative Loafing. And suddenly I was at the Washington Post as a copy boy. And they're like, what's your background? <laughs> like, My background was not the background they were lo- fucking looking for. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Uh, when, I was a, when I was on Night Police, David Remnick was a style intern. You know, hmm. that's who, when Michelle McQueen was an intern, Michelle, now Michelle Martin, um, like all those people who, you know, I grew up really close with. But anyway, um, I had to distinguish myself by working hard, I felt like. And uh, when I met Kobe, um, they gave me like unbelievable access to him and I didn't make this up because at the time they were starting to work on a campaign about Kobe's work ethic. Right. But when I met Kobe and when I realized, like, the lead of that story is about shooting a thousand shots or making a thousand shots, not shooting them. And, like, before Kobe, nobody was in the gym shooting 
trying to make a thousand shots. Nobody was like doing the Seth Curry workout. I mean, Steph Curry workout. I don't know if Seth does it. Um, you know, Kobe, like I just related to Kobe and I, what I understood about Kobe is that when you're a winner, running from the front means that you don't look behind you. Like Kobe was like a social retard because he wasn't paying attention to that. And some of the great stuff he told me was he said, you know what? I never paid attention to that. But it was so clear that he was like operating in his own game. Like as many young writers, I was writing for several years before I was already a staff writer at the Washington Post. And the great Walt Harrington said to me, have you ever read Tom Wolfe? And I said, who? Like, yeah. I'd never heard of Tom Wolf or Hunter Thompson. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? But you can believe that after he gave me the new journalism and I like, oh, my God, I had an honest-to-God epiphany sitting in my bed at night. Um, you know, it started to resonate with me. And, and so with Kobe, that's what I saw in him. So, well, I wanted to I wanted to ask you with Kobe, how much of a touchstone Mike Tyson's rape was, uh, I guess, 12 years earlier, just because it seemed like that was the last super high profile rape. I, I understand that O.J. Simpson's the O.J. Simpson trial is in between the two, but Tyson seems like kind of an obvious parallel. I just wonder how much that played into your approach. None. No. And I don't think, I, I didn't really feel like Tyson and Kobe were the same kind of person at all. I mean, I think Tyson is like, um, as, as great boxing writers would write, a primitive, you yeah. know, and Kobe was a fucking scientist. I mean, the, the key to Kobe is like his hands weren't really big enough to palm a basketball. Mm. And I think, you know, just like, I'm five foot five now, and that really makes a difference to everything I do in life and the way I relate to people and everything, even though I, I don't have a thing about it, I just think it is. You know, for Kobe too, like that's why he became the master of footwork. You know, mm. Kobe became the, and, and later in life, he became known as this ultimate technician and the guy to go and who would want to talk about the shit and all that. Um, so, no, I, I don't think Tyson and he were the same. and. I, I don't, you know, I did, I did like 20 years of crime reporting before I ever really did a celebrity profile. So um, I, I even have trouble of like knowing what really happened when people are accused of stuff. Yeah. There, only one time in my life did I get to cover a story and then go through the whole trial and then interview the people after. Um, I did that a story like there were like 12 Buddhist monks murdered in Phoenix and I started it for Rolling Stone and finished it for GQ, so I got to write the whole thing. And it just proved to me what I was trying to say. It's like, there's like the perception and the reality, and especially when you go to court and then everybody mucks everything up because lawyers just like create things in order to make smoke screens and then things get out. So. I never like prejudge anyone, and I think that's one of my important features as a journalist. I, and when I'm teaching, I call it I suspend disbelief. Like yeah. even as a Jew with a black child, I can go and sit with the Aryan Nations guy, and listen to him say all that shit, and 
when he asks, I just say I'm Italian to make it easier. <laughs> to say, yes, I'm Jewish. You know? Right. Um, well, and I, I, I didn't mean to suggest that in any way Tyson and Kobe are the same, just that no. athletes of that stature in their respective times seems pretty obvious parallel. Yeah, I don't know. I just, you know, I'm not a big list maker and what are my favorite songs and what are my favorite books and how do these things relate? I, I just look at things as snowflakes, I think. Okay. Um, I, uh, I aggregate on a different level. So, and if anything, like the way the news has gone down year after year after year, starting out as a member of like the Washington Post, Bob Woodward, Washington Post, who left the Washington Post and went to Rolling Fucking Stone as soon as I could because they were too literal minded. I'm like always looking for what I hope is like kind of a different version of the truth, at least some version of the truth, but it's usually not the version that everyone says. And, you know, I can't even really speak in some public circles. I just don't even talk about things. Yeah. Like I just, I don't get involved in the public debate about popular issues because I just feel like people aren't really looking at the whole picture in the way they're like too prejudiced, you know, in right. their own views to see. So that's what I bring to journalism, trying to like have a fresh, like yeah. if you hate Kobe, I'm going to try and like him. And my ex-wife once said, you know, he would have found something nice to say about Hitler. And, <laughs> and it's true because, you know, Ava Braun loved him. Like <laughs> there's something in there. Like yeah. find it, and that to me that becomes the me. That's like why my John Holmes story is so great. Right, like, if it's great, because never for a minute do I act like <laughs> he's a big dick. <laughs> you know, you know. I right. find like the other things about him, and I, I, and and so when society starts linking this and that and the other, I just, I have I, that's where I get off, sort of. You know. Well, I want to get to. I want to certainly want to get to Boogie Nights. But first, one sure. thing I've I've never heard you talk about it, and I think it's particularly interesting in terms of its impact on journalism. Um, I'm seeing again and again this nostalgia for for Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, Tom Hanks, just giving us another angle with Meryl Streep on the Washington Post. But it seems to me, and I also think Ben Bradley just had a, a documentary that HBO did not long ago, and they bring up the Janet Cook story and its impact on journalism and its impact on that trifecta of Woodward and Bernstein and, and Bradley. You dated Janet Cook. I, I think we've talked about briefly, but I, I've never heard much about that, and you, you wrote, I, I believe... Or rather, you published Janet's World, her, her wrote autobiography. Wrote it too, yeah. Wrote it So I would just like to hear about that, because it seems like that is such a momentous event in journalism, and the clamoring for a story like that to be true. Um, uh, you know, you're seeing, I guess we've seen reverberations of that with the Duke lacrosse um, story, um, you know, people fishing for for a story that would be very useful to the discourse it just unfortunately isn't true well yeah i mean there's so many different levels to dip into um you know there's a the most recent uh, sort of chapter of that involves hollywood but um 
my the story was sort of like swept out from under us. We had, you know, I sold that thing like in 1996, 20 some years ago to the movies, and uh, it languered for many years. And then, like three years ago, it was resurrected. And then we had people, and we had everybody. We had the producer of the Spotlight and Viola Davis, and we had everything rolling. And then all of a sudden, uh, it was announced that Netflix had bought the project without Janet, um, mm. with Ryan Murphy and um, this this uh, a person who was one of the writers for Pose, who mm. was happy to do it because she'd always wanted to be a journalist. Um, so <laughs> going at, mentioning, starting with that, that point, you know, it's, I, I've been well familiar with this for a long time. And I don't know, I think the Janet story is exactly a case of what I just said before, like my, um, my rendering of it uh, was largely motivated by the idea of getting out the true story um, which was a person with a certain amount of psychological and cultural issues which were played out against the background of this hardcore institution. Um, you know, I, I started at the Post as a reporter when I was 21 years well. I was 22. I started as a copy boy when I was 21, and I started freelancing soon thereafter. And... Um, I lost my all my hair within the first two years. The second, uh, early in the second year, Bob Woodward gave me a battlefield promotion for uh, breaking a big story and getting on the front page. And the Senate started an investigation, the GAO, and all that stuff. So I was there for six years, and I went through all of the emotions of like a true believer. I, you know, I'd never really done any news. I'd done writing. I'd been a creative writing minor. I'd worked for Creative Loafing, the Alternative Weekly of Atlanta. I'd written a, worked for the paper and the literary magazine at Emory, but I had no training. Mm -hmm. And I got there and I just screwed in. Like, eh, I didn't take a, I mean, I didn't work a day. You know, I worked all nights for like the first three years or something. I remember getting off one day at like six o'clock. I was like, oh, holy shit, what do I do? You know, I'm, I'm like in the real world. Um, so all of which to say is being at the Washington Post, um, was like grad school and a first marriage, I think, rolled into one. Um, I think I was further, um, blessed or whatever by this weird factor that it became a, this kind of quote that I was the first white male in 20 years to go from copy boy to reporter. Mm. And so I was taken under wing by Don Graham, who himself, you know, was the son of wealthy people who went to Harvard. And, but then he chose to go to Vietnam and be in the infantry and then be a D.C. policeman. And then he worked all the jobs working his way up at the post. So he took me under wing as another bootstrap guy. And they really um, allowed me a kind of an old-fashioned like yeoman education in being a journalist. I did night police. I did night rewrite. I did cops and courts. I did general. I did all the things. And then I had crusty editors saying, call him back and ask what hand the gun was in. 
you know, what side of the car? It's like two in the fucking morning. The police did not want to hear from me. And I got this guy, Gene Baczynski, and he's like making me call them back one more time. And, but he's also the guy, we were having like lunch at midnight at the local post pub, it was called, and when, uh, when, uh, when uh, John Lennon died. And I was on night police. And motherfucker, I was his only staff member. He marshaled me to go to New York and I got my first away assignment. Like I went to New York to cover John Lennon. And I, I took my portable typewriter, but not a piece of clothing or a, a toothbrush or anything. I mean, you know, you're talking about being like 22 and an idiot. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But I, and I end up pl- staying in the presidential suite at the Plaza Hotel by accident. Hmm. <laughs> nice. I remember walking around the, the block like figuring I've got this huge room and no one to fill it. And I kind of walked around the block kind of like looking for someone to fill that room with me and not really knowing. I ended up getting a couple of donuts and, <laughs> and which kind of typified my glamorous life of a journalist the rest of my life in these wonderful suites with, uh, by myself with my typewriter. Um, but so the, the Washington Post years were amazing, amazing acculturation into the journalism profession, learning the right way. You know, right. when I was proposing a story, I had to propose it to Bob fucking Woodward, who, if he didn't like your story, would tell you all about how, you know, when Kissinger told him about Nixon walking the hallways, talking to the portraits of all presidents, he knew he had a, the book. You know, and this was the guy you went to with your story ideas. Um, so, and also, it's like if you fucked one thing up at the Washington Post, there was like a chain of memos that had mm. to go out. And then here comes Janet Cook, who the whole reason I met her, she was this beautiful, exotic African American woman um, who is tall. And I was just like this, like gnomish, you know, really trying hard, I guess talented, but raw reporter. And, um, but I was always a good editor. I've always been like in college, I learned, I was like really into technique and creative writing and I could write a hell of a sentence. It just, I had no story, you know? So I was just, I had a facility with that. And that's what kind of brought us together because she had writer's block. So I would be in the newspaper late at night, like, you know, calling up precincts and doing all that shit. And she would be back in her desk like sweating over something and not getting it written and I would kind of walk by as we did because the post newsroom was like a square acre over three buildings with like 900 reporters wow so like if you had a story like one day like the next day you could spend the whole fucking day you'd read the paper then kind of walk around from desk to desk and like the people there David Marinus he was fucking Woodward's assistant like John Feinstein, who has like the biggest selling book. He was, you know, all these people who were like unbelievable. And they were, I mean, most of them were like 10 to 15 years older than me. But, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of lost all my hair early. So I looked older. It didn't matter. I was, that was my thing. And it was a fascinating place to be. Mm. And uh, so, and here was Jan and it was late at night. There was me and Baczynski and like maybe one other guy there. And like I keep, you walk around and you like talk to people, and so we kind of became friends. And then I'm like, oh, what are you working on? And she started confiding in me. And I, I guess 
I've always been an empathetic listener, which is something I discovered once I became a reporter that like my dad was a small town gynecologist. And oh, I think I have that skill of of ministerial empathy, um, which in my later life has kind of become a thing. Um, so uh, you know, we be I, I said, Oh, let me take a look at it. What what if I do this? You know, I mean I always love typing. Love fucking type. And um, and we became friends. And then you know, there was a lot of fishing off the company pier in those days, as Ben Bradley called it. You know, he married Sally Quinn, one of his own reporters. Sure. Uh, things were a little different back then. But, you know, I didn't leave the confines of the post. It was like, it was like social distancing, distancing but we, were, we just, we stayed in our bubble, and our bubble was the post. And within that subset of things, you know, there were lots of, lots of couplings and uncouplings. Um, and, um, and Janet and I, you know, became like a thing. It was, we kept it quiet at first. And it was kind of like, she was like this dazzling affirmative action twofer who was well known to Bradley and all those people. And I was like a little bit begrudgingly a bootstraps person from nowhere who was just you couldn't argue with what I was doing and that's why they kept promoting me I mean but Woodward like promoted me but I didn't even understand this at the time he promoted me but there was no slot for me hmm. so they wouldn't give me a desk or a Rolodex or my name thing and I remember like six months in I, I was 22 or 23 and I like had this little hissy fit about how I wanted my own desk and my own you know Rolodex and, and that stuff um and, you know, it was kind of those were the times. So, the, so when the whole Janet thing went down, like, Janet, over time, I became aware that she had, you know, issues. And so we stopped actually seeing one another on a daily boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. But as things were in the 80s, there was a lot of friends with benefits opportunities and and we sort of remained that so it became this complicated thing and then I was her editor and then she went and did the story and if you read the um, if you read the thing which it's 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 offered free on my website to journalists and journalism students the Sega group .net. Um, just email me and I'll send you a free copy um, but um, you know as this whole thing happened, like, I had the feeling of what this story was becoming. Mm -hmm. And I also had my doubts about it. But I also didn't know if I was jealous or not. Because mm. it was like, this was, this was a perfect storm. It was like, affirmative action, young black woman, a story about an eight-year-old heroin addict in Washington, D.C., the Washington Post, There'd never been a minority person to win a Pulitzer prior to this, you know, and the Post knew what it had. And that became the, it's sort of like, it was a perfect storm. And so nobody was really, they didn't want to know. Right. But like from the beginning, I mean, the very night that she supposedly was with Jimmy, the eight year old heroin addict. I lived a block away and I had ridden my motorcycle past her house and I saw her car 
And if you read the story, there's a lot of stuff about how she had a horrible sense of direction and couldn't even find her way to the post, which was like a mile away. And, you know, she calls me up and said she was at this place in, the, in you know, in the deep, dark, far reaches of D.C. And, like, her car was there. And there wasn't Uber then. And she didn't take a cab. And she said she drove there. So I kind of knew it was... And then, but it just kept going on, and I didn't know if I was, like, jealous. Because right. I could feel this woman was going to win a Pulitzer. And I had to, I, I felt like, you know, as a person would, as any normal person would, I have to write her shit for her, and she's going to win a Pulitzer? I mean, and, all, and yeah. ultimately what kind of happened was we had the very, one of the very first computer systems um, that newspapers had. It was built by Raytheon, and... Um, used to send her story back and forth so I could edit it. So I was on the edit trail. So when the whole thing went down, you know, I had to answer to what my part in the whole thing was. And I was interviewed by Woodward for two fucking days. Um, wow. And, like, as I write in the thing, had I something to confess, I would. You know, I, I like, confessed everything else in my life to him that didn't even matter. You know, but... Um, you know, he grilled me. It's kind of interesting, too, because he grilled me the first day. And then the second day, he said, let's have breakfast tomorrow morning. And you can, like, talk to me about how I can be a better editor. And, like, mm. so 8 o'clock in the morning in the Madison coffee shop, he starts fucking grilling me again over, like, Eggs Benedict. And I'm like, you know, literally, I'm like, 1981. I don't remember my exact age, but I was born in 1956, so you can figure it out. I wasn't that old. I was younger yeah. than my son now, uh, I think around 24. And uh, so it was an amazing experience on like so many fucking levels. And it was also like, like, I ain't never fucking with that makeup shit again. Like, you know, and in fact, to this day, probably my biggest pet peeve is people who don't tell the truth. And or people who shade the truth, or, you know, people who won't admit the truth, or, I just, like, and I know the truth is, like, kind of subjective, but I'm also good at that. And, like, it's been my job over 40 years to collect all of these versions of the truth, and then kind of, like, figure out what the truth is. And, sure. um, so. Do you, do you yeah, look at so. some of those new journalists? Do you look at Gates? I was just going to say, when you look at Gates, Elise, uh, Richard Ben Kramer, Tom Wolfe, a lot of guys, I, I think Tom Wolfe is included in this. I know the first two I mentioned are never recorded. It was like a big thing to them to work from memory and to brag about their memory. Truman, Truman Capote is another obvious one about his incredible recall. I have always been enormously suspicious of their quotes that are so literary that they're reciting in their work, um, it seems like a, a surefire way to cover your ass to make up some better quotes than, than people traditionally give. Um, I have like a, a number of things to say about that. Okay. One thing I have to say is I, I did a really deep uh, thing on Marlon Brando once. Marlon said very famously he was pissed as fuck about Truman because he got every single word right. Hmm. Now, and also, um, Gay Talese is one guy I've spent time with. And that guy takes a note when he burps. 
he's with you in public and he's taking notes. So, and I know a lot of people who have like amazing recall for things, which I am not. I'm like, I have proper noun aphasia. Um, I don't remember all this shit, but I remember sensory detail. So my technique over years has become to tape record the shit out of stuff. And interestingly, when I'm listening again, I see in my mind what had happened before. So it's almost like that's why I have this very Catholic routine. I, I could almost say that I do it st- sitting on my knees of transcribing everything. Um, and then honestly, in later days, my wrist started like going out and I had to get start getting help doing it. So I, but I, I still go over the transcript and listen. Um, and I, there's a lot of very, very popular writers today who do the same thing of not recording because, and they, but they're gifted with flow though. These are the people who are gifted with flow and they're like Hunter Thompson who he was an extreme example, but I spent a lot of time with Hunter Thompson. I was actually his assistant for three weeks once when I was at Rolling Stone and he was arrested and hmm. basically had everybody had run away from him. But like what I learned about Hunter Thompson was he like, it's as if he lived in a big fishbowl with smoke in it. Yeah. So everything that came in was kind of like sifted through smoke and lack of hearing. And um, not to that degree, but I think a lot of people, it's where they have flow. So they're just like using what they can get to write about what they think. And I think a lot of writing today is first person and it has a lot to do with what people think about it, not what this, you know, I'm like more of a traditionalist and I want to put my feelings intrinsically into the piece. I'm obviously presenting the piece, but I don't have to write, he told me. Who the fuck else did he tell? Unfortunately, that's changed too because today people quote shit that they didn't get from quotes. And so it's different if you say, he told me, means that I didn't get this from like the web. Like using it in my story. So I understand how that uses this chain, but the, you know, it's, we go back to the beginning. I'm a, um, I'm a, I'm perspiration. You know, I'm a perspiration. I'm not a brilliant person. I don't think I'm like that brilliant. I'm no Malcolm Gladwell, you know, (laughs) who is like a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, But I, I like, I feel like I have a super high EQ and so, like, in order to take advantage of my emotional quotient, I need to, like, get all the quotes right and the facts right. And it goes back to Bob Woodward. And, you know, if you got something wrong, you were like, there was a chain of command and you were like at the end of it. And you had to write memos up the chain, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I once had to, I, I wrote a story about my summer camp that I went to. I went back to it, and it was, like, all Jewish. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote it, and I was a little less, when I was young, I was a little less able to be kind than I am now. Um, but uh, I, we got a lot of complaints that it was anti-Semitic. Hmm. And I had to write a memo to Ben Bradley. 
about hmm. like complaints that this story was anti-Semitic. And then I had to go see him about my memo. I kind of got, I, I have to say, like, it was one of the great times I overstepped my bounds and I kind of got pissed and I, I wrote, number one, I am Jewish. Number two, like, I, I, I like had it. And I kind of went in there and he gave me that, the routine, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say, you know, you were anti-Semitic Jew, Jew boy. Right. You know, I right. mean, That's it was like kind of a great moment when Bed Bradley was actually sort of supplicating to me for like 20 seconds. Um, huh. Uh, because of that, like, playing the race card um, thing that I got to do, like, once. Um, that, was a, so- that, that was a big thing in Canada, actually, because one of our, our best writers, Mordecai Richler, routinely was portrayed as anti-Semitic by the Jewish community. And, one uh, of my favorites in GQ. He wrote in GQ. Oh, he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Best, yeah. It was, like, the best thing in GQ for, like, a long, long time. And a and a vicious reviewer too. I remember he he did a review on thy neighbor's wife, Gay Talese. Wow, it is a fucking sludgehammer <laughs> into that man. I don't know. You know, that's an interesting thing too. Like, you know, I I try to avoid that stuff. I like yeah. a reviewer used to be reviewing used to be the part of the thing of being a writer, but I don't know why people always fell to that bait. Like yeah. all writers, like we like in one way, we like lo- we're like brothers. We like love each other and we hate each other. And we can't stand it. Like in a way, we can brag about them, but we also can't stand it. And yeah. I don't, so reviewing is kind of like I don't know. But that's kind of what's funny because you you said you wanted to talk about profile celebrity profiles, and and one of my deepest darkest secrets is I don't think celebrities should be profiled. I don't mm. think I always I've always said I don't think actors should should talk you know, I think they should act, sing, you know, box, play the sport, do whatever. And like they don't really give us the answer we want. You know, it's sort of like what we want to know is what it feels like when Kobe's dunking. <laughs> what does it right. feel like when you did that 360 behind your back? It didn't feel like anything, man. It like just felt like I was doing it. And like that's boring as fuck. So but that's why sports writing has always been the um the area of great writers, because there's so much to paste onto it. There's right. so much, you know, storyline to paste into the boxing. Like well, let me ask you something though, Mike, because there's one exception to that. I agree with you entirely. If you ask Mark McGuire what it was like to hit seventy home runs or, or Barry Bonds, but I remember and I've seen it quoted a million times when Bobby Fischer was asked by Dick Cavett, what is it like, what is the equivalent in this game to hitting the home run or having the knockout punch? He thought about it for a second and it was clear it was not a prepared answer. And he said, it's, it's crushing a man's ego. That's the real pleasure in chess. And even more interestingly was when he went back on Dick Cavett's show after he won the world championships, Cavett kind of giggling said, did you have that moment of crushing his ego? And he went, not quite the full caving-in capitulation, suggesting that to have your opponent commit suicide is the real payoff, not just murdering them, but the well, suicide. I, but I think that guy's like a million times more prepared to answer that question in a way that we find satisfying because he plays a mind game. 
True. He's not playing a physical game. True. Now, the physical game requires a mind game. There's no fucking doubt about it. Because yep. the, you get into the work ethic, the slog, the pulling up in the fourth quarter, the all reaching down. But you're still like, what does it feel like to do that? It feels like a muscle memory. And like <laughs> a certain amount of like satisfaction in your, at a cellular level. Well, let me, let me ask you. Well, A, I just want to get it out of the way. Did you profile any boxers? Because of all the lists you sent me of people, I don't see any. No, I, the only thing I've done is I've done MMA. Well, if, if, there, if you were guns to your head to write about one boxer, who, who would you have liked to have had an opportunity to profile? Muhammad. Ali. Yeah. I, find, I always found Tyson really interesting. I mm -hmm. mean, if I could have done... Like, I always wanted to, like... You know, if I could do the anthropology with Michael Jackson, I wanted to do that. Like, like oh, let me do what Kobe let me do. Like, hang out with you and see you really act like you're acting. Like, Muhammad, because, you know, I have a really strong background of before all this stuff. I was like, I studied Southern history, civil rights. You know, I, I was, I, my first story for Esquire was Al Sharpton. Right. Like one of the greatest examples of everybody hated him, Tawana Brawley. That was their one sentence about one word about Al Sharpton. The Tawana Brawley loving Al Sharpton. And I fucking love that guy. I thought he was a genius. And I thought he was legit. And that was when he was fat and wore these suits and a medallion and everybody and the processed hair, which is so right. interesting because he promised James Brown he would wear his hair like that. You know, oh, he's amazing. And, and he's and and then look, he ended up running for fucking president. So I knew him. I knew Jesse. I knew some other guys. This Leon Sullivan guy who's long gone now, who like basically started the divestiture movement for South Africa. Yeah. And um, and Jesse like learned from him. And so Muhammad, like, uh, well, tell me what it was like then with Dana White, somebody because I mean a big thing there is in a very short amount of time, the UFC began sort of taking a page off of uh, Bloodsport, trying to create the Van Damme, Kumite, the most exciting thing possible, the best of all styles. They were going to have shark-infested water or electrify the fence. I mean, it was very going back to Rome, sort of bread and circus sort of deal. But they, they found their footing, despite John McCain not allowing it because it's human cockfighting and all the states banning it, I think, except for one. And now it's kind of illegal in New York when I wrote the story, yeah. Right. So what, do you, what did you make of him? What was, what was that meeting like? Um, Dana White, um, you know, I said earlier in our conversation that the way, sometimes the way I kind of hook into somebody is they remind me of somebody. Mm. Um, and Dana White, Reminds me a lot of Mark Cuban. Interesting. Um, huh. Not with the funds, but with the like chutzpah. And also like the notion that he's like kind of like a regular guy. Right. I, Personal trainer. Yeah. And he, these stories of like riding his bicycle through the snow in Boston with all his personal training shit in a big duffel bag um but just the vibe i had with him um and same with cuban 
both kind of like East Coasty guys, um, real. I mean, Cuban, he was even embarrassing because I was with him when he just got his eight billion. And so I was with him when he bought his 20,000 square foot house and he bought the ma- he bought the plane and then he bought the maps. And I, that was the three weeks, you know, well, I was with him three weeks over like a four month period in the way we used to do in the old days. But he used to have, before he owned the Mavericks, he used to have these seats under the basket. Hmm. And he would like yell at people. He was like that fan that was like calling like players fat. Hey, have another hamburger. You know, right. <laughs> like whoever it was, Paul right. Pierce or whatever is looking chunky um, or whatever. So I, both of those guys, I felt like they had their own certain conventional wisdom, which was not like um, the cut and dried normal thing. And I think that's why they made it because they were maybe what Malcolm Gladwell would call outliers the same way as Kobe, you know, kind of like people who are like in their own game, thinking mm-hmm. their own thought, doing their own thing, not afraid to kind of be different and almost like not just being different to be different, but being different because you don't even know how else to be. Right. Like I can't write a story with transitions in it. Hmm. <laughs> Like, I've been called upon to write more conventional stories since, like, the demise of Esquire. And I'm just, like, an essay story with trans with different interviews and an essay story with different interviews and transitions. And I, I can't do that. I have to go there and, like, do it like that. Right. I, I can't do this on the phone. Well, I want to get to three before we go. I mean, if you have ten more minutes, would that be okay? I got time. I'm good. Um, I want to hit so Boogie busy. Nights. <laughs> I want to hit Boogie Nights, Nicholson, Paris Hilton, and David Duchovny. What those what those four were like. Um, so if we start off with Boogie Nights. One of my favorite movies to revisit is definitely that film. Uh, it's a weird one for a lot of people. I remember a lot of my friends when it came out. I think I was seventeen. Most of my friends loved the first half and absolutely despised the second half. Uh, um, the up, happy, surrogate family atmosphere that you got at in that article. I want to know, I want a bit of a backstage pass to what it was like in terms of Paul Thomas Anderson optioning that story and any involvement you may have had with him discussing it or after it's come oh. out or whatever. Well, here's the good thing because he never optioned it. He didn't. And he never credited me until he first brought out the DVD version. And then oh. it was only when he was on, is it Mark Marone? Is that how you say his name? Marin. Marin. Mark Marin, who I don't know at all. And I actually even called him up one time and he wasn't interested in helping me doing something. But he sort of made P.T. Anderson utter my name for the first time. Oh. He'd never uttered my name before. Now, it's, it's kind of a, a Hollywood story where, uh, as I would later understand and didn't at the time because it was so new, but I didn't own the rights to John Holmes. Okay. And it's, yeah, he's a public, he's like a person that I can't own him. Like, Jana Cook and I, we signed a deal and we, they had our life rights as well as the rights to my story. And that's why they don't really need 
the rights to my story and Janet to make this the thing on Netflix because um, it's a public figure. And then you can just make up whatever shit you want because only I have interviewed Janet. But then, you know, if they happen to like use my stuff, like I either have to like go to court and prove it or I'm shit out of luck. So actually, Boogie Nights was an amalgamation of several things. My story and also there's this great documentary by a woman pornographer called Exhausted about John Holmes. And many of the scenes are done frame by frame out of that documentary, which is wow. very interesting too. Uh -huh. um, but so I sold Boogie Nights to Eric Roberts, owned it for six years. The guy who wrote Weekend at Bernie's 2, no, Bill and Ted's Big Adventure 2, owned it for a couple years. Yeah. And um, so it was a competing project. And similar with uh, Wonderland, which is like directly lifted from the thing, which Val was Kilmer. Yeah, which was an interesting piece, although you kind of need the story to read and then you could watch it better. But they at least paid the two women that I discovered, um, his wife and his mistress, that made the story more personal anyway. Yeah. So. Boogie Nights, really, I guess what I could say about Boogie Nights is it was the impetus for my having a book career. Because mm. I, there was a company, it was at that time called Thundermouth Press, Thunder's Mouth Press, who was collecting like one-offs of my stories and collections. And when Boogie Nights was coming out, and I knew it was coming out without me, I asked the guy if he had a collection that I could put John Holmes in. And he's like, oh, I love this story, but I don't. And so, like, two days later, he got a FedEx with a, a loose-leaf notebook full of clips carefully Xeroxed into a book that became Scary Monsters and Super Freaks, which mm. I stupidly sold. It should have been two books because there are 22 stories in it. But um, So that became my book. So I kind of got that out of it. And okay. I think that's sort of the way you have to look at all this stuff. I've, I've optioned no less... Well, not 30 stories, because some stories I've optioned more than once, but I've had no less than, no fewer than 30 movie options in my career. And, um, you know, there's some things that have been ha happened without me. There's some things that were like, I helped, like the Todd Marinovich um, documentary on ESPN 30 for 30, which I narrated, but I didn't get paid for. There was like one called Veronica Guerin with Kate Blanchett that I got paid for. Um, actually legit paid and now I got like a couple projects in the works that I might actually get paid for um, but um, it's more like it's there there's like some smoking guns in the in the script of Boogie Nights even and like in the thing um, and that's kind of it it's sort of like he used it and he had every right to use it I wish he would have acknowledged me and and more recently, I've gone to great lengths. Like, I have the same kind of thing going on with my Rick James story. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Rick and I were like actual friends. I didn't come up to Rick after he was dead like John Holmes. But um, I went a long distance with, like, top guys of, of this production company to make sure that even though I wasn't optioning, I was getting credited. Mm -hmm. And it's not even about the money. It's just about like the the you know the credit, so so that was my experience with Boogie Nights. I'm always going to be the guy that wrote Boogie Nights, 
uh, the the story based on Boogie Nights, rather. Um, but and, and, you know, and he admitted it. And he admitted it on on Marin. Finally, that's yeah. That's and a, also, it's like it was in Slate. It's been in a few places. So I'm not only the asshole. Yeah. yeah right. Oh, that's based on me. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and can't like get that. Like, being that guy making those claims and feeling all bad about it. It's like life is long. I've always felt as though my, my career like was about like the like just one story at a time, the best I can do. I told myself that since I was like little, uh, a little writer. <laughs> and sure. and that's how I feel now. It's like the critical mass that you create. And um, and that's also like a lot what I have to do with like why I started the book company too. Because it's sort of like legacy, like not just for me, but like for a lot of authors where, you know, your book is always going to be there. And that's what you just care about. Like, are you going to get rich off of it? Well, no, but you'll get something. You'll get your due. At some point you get something, you know, it's like I believe in karma in that way. And I believe in hard work in that way. Yeah. Of the characters you have who are, I'm blown away at how disparate they are. It's such an eclectic array. Um, I absolutely hated David Duchovny's face when I first saw him in the X-Files. He shit all over Vancouver, my hometown, so he was hated where we're from, where I'm from. Uh, and then I saw him, I think, on Larry Sanders and found out he was just a few credits short of his PhD in literature from Princeton and fell totally in love with him as a character. I just find him so charming and amusing and unusual in, in kind of the, the Hollywood milieu of actors. So you listed him as not your favorite person and yet a very singular kind of subject for an interview with what you encountered. Please let me hear more. All right, well, it's probably a good, I don't know, 10, 15 years into my career before I ever really even did a celebrity interview. And mm. the first celebrity I ever did was... Uh, when Rob Lowe got into trouble at the Democratic Convention uh, with the underage taping. You know, he was like one of the first sex tape scandals. Right. Um, funny, I guess Paris was one of the other ones. So I really wasn't that familiar with celebrities, and I remember doing the Rob Lowe thing, and at one point I'm like in L.A., and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting for like Molly Ringwald to call me. And like I remember calling this like publicist and saying I could get into the White House faster than Molly Ringwald will call me back like what the fuck is going on out here but one of the earliest interviews I did and I looked it up it's 1999 um, it was it was Duchovny and um, I go up to LA and I I had a little kid at the time and I lived in San Diego so I, I flew up there and I I had my first meeting with him and he was just like not cooperative and it's funny over the years i looked up his age he was 38 hmm. like i just did a celebrity profile with chris evans captain america he's 38 hmm. i did one with benicio del toro that stands out as one of my worst interviews ever he was like right around that age <laughs> why was it horrible about... why was it horrible he wouldn't, he wouldn't play. He wouldn't oh, answer. Yeah. He just thought it was stupid, which it is. Celebrity <laughs> interviews are, like, stupid. You just have to agree to move on with it. And, like, yeah. I think 
I think men in their late 30s are very self-conscious. And also, I think perhaps when um, they meet like someone who is perhaps not a celebrity journalist, but maybe a real writer, there's yeah. a little bit of like intimidation factor um, that comes into it. And, and so knowing some of this, but not all of this, I, I, I met Duchovny. We had our first interview. It sucked. And then we were supposed to have a second encounter. And I'm at the Mondrian. Like, it used to be so great. It would be like, you know, $40 for breakfast and $500 a night. And they upgraded your room because you were like on the corporate plan, which somehow means getting a more expensive room. And, you know, but my wife's at home with the kid and she's like pissed, always pissed that I'm gone. It was just amazing for 20 years that we were married that I ever got anything done. Um, but that's a whole other story. But Duchovny's like not seeing sure. me, not seeing me, not seeing me. And I'm like, you know, what the fuck? So and I call, I complain, same kind of Molly Ringwald thing. You know, I can see the president before I can see David Duchovny, what the fuck? And so finally I go there and I remember we're in like, this uh, forested area in, I think it's in the George Washington National Forest or somewhere near there, or maybe it's Topanga Canyon. Um, and it's raining like shit, but you know, these on, they can like do amazing things on, 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 on location. So they got like awnings everywhere and heaters and it's, it might be raining and cold, but like they have this whole thing down. So I'm like, but I'm like standing there waiting for him to come out of his trailer and he finally comes out of his trailer and we start like talking a little bit and he's like evasive again. And I'm like, look, man. And this kind of became my thing. It's always been my, like, I don't want to interview somebody who doesn't want to be interviewed. I just, I don't do that. I've done a few write arounds. They're really good because you get to use your writerly skill. I think my hunting Marlon Brando is a great story. But it yeah. really means that you're not getting a story and you have to make it up. And that's like good once in a while. But I'm there to like interview somebody for a cover story. And on top of that, this is supposed to be a fucking business deal. Like I have a celebrity wrangler at Esquire. They're like talking to studios. They're making deals to get people to be on their cover to sell magazines. I mean, I've had op occasions where I did Angelina Jolie for the cover and Oliver Stone for what I've learned because they were doing Alexander. You know, they're packages. That's what we do. We like package shit and like, so do Covney's people and my people make a fucking deal to do a fucking interview. I feel like I also have a certain responsibility not to really fuck somebody either because that's the tacit agreement too. So I'm not gonna, I've never been a hitman as a celebrity writer either. I'm always gonna try to find, and I just do that. I think it's more interesting to find the good part about somebody than the bad, you know? Yeah. But so he's like hemming and hawing. And finally, I just say to him, all right, forget it. Like, if you don't want to talk, I'm leaving. And I turned around to leave and I didn't, they didn't let me like Peter Griffin at Esquire. Like he was like insistent that you don't put yourself it was really funny. He didn't want me in my stories at all. So it doesn't have this part in there. But um, I like just turned around to leave. And Duchovny goes, oh, uh, uh, wait a minute, uh, uh, wait a minute. 
And, and it's in the story, but in a, to paraphrase it, he says to me, you know, it's the end of X-Files. I have nothing to sell. So I don't know why I'm doing this interview. Like, people think I'm smart, but I know I'm not that smart. And, like, I have nothing to say. And so I'm worried. And then what I usually do is make up with it by making glib remarks, which is kind of interesting why you probably think he hates Vancouver, because he probably didn't. But he just probably said some shit because he's kind of clever and saying some shit the way he does. And it always gets him in trouble. And in the story, I looked at it, he, I kind of recount that. Um, but so over this few minutes of time, he explained to me why celebrities don't like doing interviews hmm. and why he was resistant to doing it. And it was like, thank you for explaining this. It's hmm. like, not me. Now I know it's not me. You know, it's not, it's just, it's just you being insecure and you being an actor because actors really there was another, besides this moment, the other really aha moment I've ever had was um, Nicole Kidman when he, she won her Academy Award for Moulin Rouge, I think it was. She got up there and she said something about, to her director or her writer, she said, I need your words. Mm. Like, right now, she like, and, and that's just true. Like, they're actors. They're like, they don't really... I mean, I think the older guys, like I, like Fat Rod Steiger, Nicholson, um, he was a little nutty, but like those people, they have lived life. Kirk fucking Douglas, great interview. Mm. Hard to understand because he just had his thing, his stroke. But I mean, those people had so much wisdom, but the younger people are like, they don't have the wisdom and they're kind of full of themselves. And plus they're a little insecure. Mm -hmm. Um about yeah. like because they just memorize lines and pretend to be someone else that's their job and then we make them into these people and then i always say like you know we either want to fuck them or be them and, right. and that's what all the celebrity writing has to do it's like you hovering around the person trying to do everything except have sex with them when that's kind of what it's like you want to know what it's like to be with the people but they're never really going to be with you anyway. Like to right. some, and, and like, I have done some interviews where you've got like four months and they were, the people are a little nutty because who would want to do that? But then that made the best interviews. My time with Roseanne. Yeah. And like I came to understand Roseanne as a genius, not as an asshole. Like mm. give me my time and I will figure you the fuck out. Like she might have had multiple personality disorder. Sure. But like... Okay. Um, fascinating. Give me Nicholson. What was that to encounter? Because he's a very enigmatic, doesn't well, like Nicholson interviews. also told me that he only does interviews in the interest of um, publicizing things. Yeah. And that he learned, he knows I don't need that, you know, which is what we at the press can't understand why somebody wouldn't want to do an interview, you know, but... Um, Nicholson was very interesting. I would say there was a movie Nicholson did a long time ago where he played a writer who was very full of foibles and insecurities. As good as it gets. And an amazing movie. And I would say that's Nicholson. Mm, like, interesting. He, 
clearly has like OCD. When we were together, he was like, like he had this cup of coffee and I love Jack, no offense. And, and I love the first question I asked him was why he wore sunglasses. And um, he said, cause he likes like a shield between himself and the world. And, you know, I'm like so old that I need readers, of course, but I have these regular glasses that are like readers, have readers, but then they're just glass and I just like to wear them. Like, I, feel, I like the shield. <laughs> now, right. like, it keeps people from spitting their COVID in my eyes. But um, <laughs> um, so Nicholson was, was like super interesting. And um, he had this a coffee in an old fashioned so- cup with a saucer. And he had his cigarettes in a box, old-fashioned box with an old-fashioned lighter on the table. And we were sitting in his compound in, he has two houses, which is interesting because he's in the same compound as Marlon Brando used to be, which years earlier I had tried so hard to get into and finally had gotten into, and it's part of this Marlon Brando story. Um, So, and he also clearly had emphysema. And he was chain-smoking. Really? Yeah, his like voice was just it was horrible. I mean, maybe he had, had bronchitis. I don't know. But no, 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 you're right. Alarm, you're right. I, I was a smoker at the time, too. But yeah. so what he would do is he would take his cup and saucer off the top of the box of cigarettes, open the box of cigarettes, take a cigarette out, you know, light the cigarette, put it all back. And we were in this room with all this like mid-century modern for real furniture with like, I remember there was some kind of skin on the wall and like what my, I, I'm not an art connoisseur, but you could tell there was like priceless art everywhere, like shit that just looked familiar, um, you know, and, and he's going through this ritual every time. And at one point he like spilled his coffee, like it, it must not have been more than a, a tablespoon of milky coffee on the thing. And he like stopped and became horrified. And I remember I getting up and going around the table and grabbing some Kleenex out of a Kleenex thing and like sopping it up for him. Yeah. And I don't know, at that moment I was like so fucking charmed by him and how like weird and foible like he was and yet how sweet and yet so Jack Nicholson-y and everything he was saying was like brilliant at the same time so uh, it was a very good experience I mean most celebrities don't fucking impress me I but I do like in the process of every even Chris Evans like I watched 36 of his 39 movies and I come to sort of like someone in a very Jewish, fatherly, felling kind of way, like this person belongs to me. And um, so I never, I mean, it informs like the way I want to tell the story. Um, so Nicholson was just a really super long kind of Q&A. So all I could do was concent- mm. had to concentrate on was asking the questions and soliciting the answer and mopping up his coffee um but he was it was just really fun to be 
with those people. And certain times I've gotten to be with iconic people, you know, Buzz Aldrin, you know, mm. I remember my favorite, one of my favorite stories about a celebrity is I, I got to interview Ray Charles. And um, my father-in-law is a Creole from Louisiana, my ex-father-in-law, and he loved, well, he's an ex-person as well, may he rest in peace, but he loved Ray Charles. And I remember I'm in LA and I went early to Amoeba Records and I went to buy like an old Ray Charles album because I could, so I could get a signature for my father-in-law. And because I never got autographs, that's like one thing you never do, you know, like, fuck, I don't care about you. I'm not getting your autograph, but I was going to get Ray Charles autograph. So I even took enough forethought to buy an album that had a lot of uh, white space on it. So even though he was blind, he could sign it. So long story short, I asked him if he'd sign something and he says, sorry, I don't sign anything I can't see. Jesus. (laughs) Funny. So there was a few people in the course of time that were really, um, you know, and he was just amazing as an interview too. And, um, and and gracious. It's like the more famous, the more accomplished, the more gracious. Mm. And that's certainly something that I've tried to live up to. Well, we got to do this again sometime because I feel like we just scratched the surface, but this is a good little start. Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. Good. Thanks for having me, man. Let me know if I can do anything else. You got it. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.